A little boy, a boy of ten, lay sick in his home in Washington. His name was Tom, but they called him Tad, and he would only take medicine from his father. Only take medicine from his father, who was to make a speech the next day, in a place a half day's ride away by train, and the speech that he was to deliver not yet fully written. The father of the little boy said he must go, but his wife, the boy's mother, scolded and said no, he should not go. But the father went, riding in a train that rocked and shook so he could not write and pen the words to the speech that he must make. Finally, the train arrived at its destination, and the man and his party went to the home of his host for the night, and it was there that he put the finishing touches to his words, put them on paper with pen and needing only two sheets from beginning to end. Then the next day, he mounted a horse, a small bay, and his long legs dangled almost to the ground. And he rode along with a large procession from the house where he had passed the night to the speaker's platform that was much too small and where he sat for many long hours because he was not the only speaker nor even the main speaker and the man who spoke before him did so for two interminable hours. But then it was President Abraham Lincoln's turn to speak on that day just 100 years ago this week on November 19, 1863 and he spoke only 270 words, the Gettysburg Address. On Sunday, November 17, 1963, Frank McGee signed on for NBC's Monitor with a look at Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Lincoln's famous speech was about to celebrate its 100th anniversary. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we're engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We've come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It's altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Meanwhile, President Kennedy was in Florida, unofficially on the 1964 campaign trail. NBC News presents President Kennedy in Florida, a new special covering the president's activities today during a speaking tour of the Sunshine State. Here is NBC News correspondent Richard Valeriani speaking from the Americana Hotel in Miami Beach. President Kennedy spent a busy day of travel and speechmaking in Florida. Although his trip was billed as non-political, today's pace approached the tempo of the campaign trail. Florida has gone Republican in the last three national elections and harbors strong sentiments for Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater. On Saturday, November 16th, Kennedy traveled to Cape Canaveral 
where he inspected the Saturn Control Center and watched a Polaris missile test launch. The next morning, he and Special Assistant Dave Powers went to Sunday Mass at St. Anne's Church in Palm Beach. On the day of this special broadcast, the President began his day at MacDill Air Force Base. After a weekend at his father's Oceanside home in West Palm Beach, the President flew this morning to MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa. There, he was briefed on the Strike Command, a unified Air Force Army command designed for the quick deployment of American forces anywhere in the world. After lunch, a helicopter took him to Al Lopez Field, where he marked the 50th anniversary of the start of commercial aviation. An overflow crowd of about 15,000 people, including hundreds of teenagers, greeted him with enthusiasm. Thousands more lined the route of his motorcade as he rode to the National Guard Armory for an address to the Florida Chamber of Commerce. The president sought to dispel the impression that his administration is anti-business. Here are excerpts from that speech. In the last three years, American business and industry have directly benefited from a host of our legislative and administrative actions, which increase corporate cash flow, increase markets at home and abroad, increase consumer purchasing power, and increase plant modernization and productivity. And still other steps have been taken to curb the wage price spiral. The first six months of 1963, there were less time lost in strikes than any time since the Second World War to hold down the cost of credit and to bring more harmony into industrial relations. I do not say that these actions were taken for the benefit of business alone. They were taken to benefit the country. Some of them were labeled pro-business. Some of them were labeled anti-business. Some of them were labeled both by opposing groups. But that kind of label is meaningless. This administration is pro the public interest. Nor do I say that all of these policies could please all American businessmen all of the time. So long as the interests and views of businessmen frequently clash with each other, no president could possibly please them all. Businessmen are welcome at the White House, and I welcome the chance to address business me meetings such as this. Not uh, because I expect that uh, it will uh, necessarily affect uh, the results of elections, but I do think, I do think it can affect what this country does and how it moves ahead and whether we're going to be able to find jobs for all the people that need them and whether we're going to build the kind of a country in which all of us can take pride and credit. And that's the kind of cooperative effort which I invite from businessmen and from other interested citizens. If we can keep open the channels of communication, this country can make progress ahead. To further that understanding, I would like to answer four questions that I'm most frequently asked by businessmen or written about or written to. The first and most frequently asked question is, is the federal government growing so large that our private economy is endangered? My answer to that is no. The federal government has been growing for 175 years. Our population has grown even faster. Our territory and economy have grown and become more closely linked. The size of our business, labor, farm, and other establishments and organizations have grown. 
above all our responsibilities around the world have grown, and our stake in world peace has grown immeasurably. Life itself is more complex, and the American people in the 20th century have come to expect more from governmental action. From 1948 to 1962, the total federal debt increased less than 20%. We had the Korean War, oral obligations abroad, a tremendously growing country, tremendously growing population. The federal debt grew by less than 20%, while the average for all the states was 500%. Or taking only the four years from 1958 to 1962, the federal debt rose only 8%, while state debt as a whole went up 41%. I'm asked, why can't this administration cut federal expenditures? And my answer is that we have cut. I recommended an additional $620 million of reduction in this year's budget since first submitting it last January. Domestic civilian expenditures, excluding national defense, space, and interest on the debt, Domestic civilian expenditures were budgeted below the level of last year, a feat rarely accomplished in the last 15 years. Once 16% larger than state and local expenditures, our federal civilian expenditures are now 43% smaller. Finally, the question arises, will the fiscal policies of the government lead to inflation? And my answer to that is no. The danger of inflation arises when the level of total and private demand presses against our productive capacity. We are far from that today. Total output in this country would have to increase by $30 billion to reduce unemployment to 4%. Our productive plant still, as all of you know, is still well below what you could produce operating at maximum capacity. Idle men and machines allow plenty of room for decreased taxes and increased demand without the risk of inflation. The tax cut, moreover, can be expected to stimulate productivity and growth and thus add to our productive potential, lessening the danger of inflation. The businessman gave President Kennedy a friendly reception. When he is pleased by his rapport with an audience, he jokes with them. This he did with the businessmen when he was asked when he would name himself a candidate for next year's election. He said, let's just sort of leave it in doubt. I was a candidate so early in 1959, he said, that I thought this time I would keep everybody in more suspense. Photos from this trip, which would be the president's last to Florida, which had voted Republican in the previous two presidential elections, show Kennedy smiling brightly as did fellow Americans, especially those who shook his hand or lined the roads alongside the 28-mile path his motorcade took in Tampa Bay. When Kennedy traveled to Miami, he addressed a Democrat crowd at the airport. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been making nonpartisan speeches all day, and I'm glad to come here as a Democrat and express my pleasure as a If there are any Republicans here, this is a Democratic message that I'm about to give. I want to give them fair warning. Woodrow Wilson once said that a political party is of no use 
unless it's serving a great national purpose. I believe that the Democratic Party in this century has served a great national purpose here in the state of Florida, here in this county, and here in the United States. We have been for the last three years attempting to build upon a framework and platform built by other distinguished Democratic presidents who went before Harry Truman and Franklin Roosevelt who make it possible for us who make it possible for us to live in a secure and growing country in a world in which our vital interests are now being protected and I can assure you will be protected in the future. What is it we want to do? I want to see us assist colleges to provide dormitories and classrooms to take care of the seven and a half to eight million boys and girls who are going to try to go to college in 1970 and will if we make the right decision now. And then I want to see this country provide an economic growth rate to make it possible for all those people who want to find a job to work. And thirdly, we want to provide security for them in their older age. Franklin Roosevelt began it in Social Security. And we're going to contribute to it in providing assistance for those who desire medical assistance as they retire after the age of 62 or 65. Those are some of the things that we want to do. I know there are those who are opposed to it. They opposed everything Franklin Roosevelt tried to do. They opposed everything that Harry Truman tried to do. And now in 1963, when we stand as we do for progress, we still have those who say, no, stop. Let's just forget it. I don't think we want to forget it. I think a majority of the people of the United States are committed to the movement forward of Florida and this country. Cape Canaveral and all the rest symbolize a growing Florida and a growing country. So I'm glad to come here today. I'm going to come back next year and make the longer speech. That same day, a fire killed 26 people at the Surfside Hotel in Atlantic City, New Jersey. During the off-season, the hotel served as a convalescent home for elderly people. Ten bodies were never recovered, and only two of the 15 could be identified. A former mental patient and convicted arsonist would be arrested for the crime. He confessed he poured gasoline into the hotel's boiler and set it ablaze. However, an Atlantic City grand jury did not find probable cause to return an indictment. That evening, NBC TV's Huntley Brinkley Report featured a four-minute news feature on the Beatles. It was the group's first appearance on American TV. A helicopter then brought him to the Americana Hotel, where he addressed the Inter-American Press Association, a gathering of the Hemisphere's editors and publishers. The president spoke in the huge grand ballroom with the flags of all the American republics as a backdrop. He was flanked by lighted candles at both ends of the speaker's table. Here are the highlights of that speech. We intend to support strongly the leadership of the new Inter-American Committee for the Alliance for Progress and why we are working to clear away unnecessary obstacles to the swift administration of United States contributions. Necessary concentration on obstacles and improvements should not obscure the fact that the Alianza para el Progreso has also made important progress. 
we have created new machinery for inter-American cooperation. The United States has committed $2.3 billion to the Alianza, and the Latin American nations have committed billions more. In many countries, there have been new efforts at land reforms and tax reforms, education and agriculture. The basic issues of progress and reform, long ignored, have become the battleground of the political forces of the hemisphere. And on the economic front, last year, 10 of the 19 Latin American countries exceeded the per capita growth of 2.5% established by the Charter of Pundalesta. Nor can the failure of some to meet the goals of the Charter be placed wholly on the shortcomings of the Alliance. No amount of external resources, no stabilization of commodity prices, no new inter-American institutions can bring progress to nations which do not have political stability and determined leadership. No series of hemispheric agreements or elaborate machinery can help those who lack internal discipline, who are unwilling to make sacrifices and renounce privileges. No one who sends his money abroad, who is unwilling to invest in the future of his country, can blame others for the deluge which threatens to overcome and overwhelm him. For the Alianza para el Progreso is not an external aid program. It is more than a cooperative effort to finance development plans. It is a battle for the progress and freedom of all of our nations. And it must be fought on every front of national interest and national need. First is the front of social justice. It is impossible to have real progress as long as millions are shut out from opportunity and others forgiven obligations. In my own country, we have prepared legislation and mobilized the strength of the federal government to ensure to American Negroes and all other minorities access to the benefits of American society. Others must also do the same for the landless campesino, the underprivileged slum dweller, the oppressed Indian. Privilege is not easily yielded up. But until the interests of a few yield to the interest of the nation, the promise and modernization of our society will remain a mockery to millions of our citizens. The second front is the front of economic welfare, the principle that every American has the right to a decent life for himself and a better life for his children. This means we must continue to perfect national development plans to improve financing machinery and institutions. It means that every nation must be willing to make sacrifices and mobilize its own resources for development. It also means that the United States of America must live up to the full its commitment to provide continuing help. I have pledged the full energies of this government to ensure that commitment will be met. And it's my hope that the Congress of the United States and the people of the United States will recognize not only the obligation that lies upon them, but also the opportunity. In pursuit of economic welfare, the Alianza does not dictate to any nation how to organize its economic life. Every nation is free to shape its own economic institutions 
in accordance with its own national needs and will. However, just as no country can tell another how it must order its economy, no nation should act within its own borders so as to violate the rights of others under accepted principles of international law. Private enterprise also has an important place in the Alliance for Progress. There is not enough available public capital, either in the United States or in Latin America, to carry development forward at the pace that is demanded. Yet the net flow of foreign capital alone was almost $250 million less this year than last, a third as much as the entire request to the United States Congress for assistance funds in this hemisphere. If encouraged, private investment, responsive to the needs, the laws, and the interests of the nation, can cooperate with public activity to provide the vital margin of success, as it did in the development of all the nations of the West, and most especially in the development of the United States of America. This country would not have achieved its present growth rate if it had not been for the development capital, the private development capital that came to this country, especially in the years prior to World War I, when the United States was an underdeveloped country. If we are to have the growth essential to the requirements of our people in this hemisphere, then an atmosphere must be developed and maintained that will encourage the flow of capital in response to opportunity. Today, that capital is moving into growth here in the United States and into Western Europe. Together, we must provide the environment that will encourage its flow to Latin America. And third is the front of political democracy and stability. This is at the core of our hopes for the future. There can be no progress and stability if people do not have hope for a better life tomorrow. That faith is undermined when men seek the reins of power and ignore the restraints of constitutional procedures. They may even do so out of a sincere desire to benefit their own country. But democratic governments demand that those in opposition accept the defects of today and work towards remedying them within the machinery of peaceful change. Otherwise, in return for momentary satisfaction, we tear apart the fabric and the hope of lasting democracy. The charter of the Organization of American States calls for, and I quote, the consolidation on this continent within the framework of democratic institutions, a system of individual liberty and social justice based on respect for the essential rights of man. The United States is committed to this proposition. Whatever may be the case in other parts of the world, this is a hemisphere of free men capable of self-government. It is in accordance with this belief that the United States will continue to support the efforts of those seeking to establish and maintain constitutional democracy. And fourth is the front of international responsibility. We must honor our commitment to the peaceful settlement of disputes the principle of collective action and the strengthening of the inter-American system. We must also continue to invite and urge the participation of other Western nations 
in development programs. And the United States will continue to urge upon its allies the necessity of expanding the markets for Latin American products. But just as we have friends abroad, we also have enemies. Communism is struggling to subvert and destroy the process of democratic development to extend its rule to other nations of this hemisphere. If the alliance is to succeed, we must continue to support measures to halt communist infiltration and subversion and to assist governments menaced from abroad. The American states must be ready to come to the aid of any government requesting aid to prevent a takeover linked to the policies of foreign communism rather than to an internal desire for change. My own country is prepared to do this. We in this hemisphere must also use every resource at our command to prevent the establishment of another Cuba in this hemisphere. For if... For if there is one principle which has run through the long history of this hemisphere, it is our common determination to prevent the rule of foreign systems or nations in the Americas. We have ultimately won this battle against every great power in the past. We will continue to wage it and win it. And as we gain momentum and strength, the appeal and force of communism will greatly diminish. This has already begun to happen. Castroism, which a few years ago commanded the allegiance of thousands in almost every country, today has far fewer followers scattered across the continent. Experience in China, the Soviet Union, and in Cuba itself has revealed that the promises of abundance under tyranny are false. We ourselves can prove that democratic progress is the surest answer to the promises of the totalitarians. These are the many fronts of the Alliance for Progress. The conduct of those fronts, the steady conquest of the surely yielding enemies of misery and hopelessness, hunger and injustice is the central task for the Americas in our time. But no sense of confidence, of optimism in the future of the hemisphere as a whole can conceal our feelings at the self-inflicted exile of Cuba from the Society of American Republics. The genuine Cuban revolution, because it was against the tyranny and corruption of the past, had the support of many whose aims and concepts were democratic. But that hope for freedom and progress was destroyed. The goals proclaimed in the Sierra Maestra were betrayed in Havana. It is important to restate what now divides Cuba from my country and from the other countries of this hemisphere. It is the fact that a small band of conspirators has stripped the Cuban people of their freedom and handed over the independence and sovereignty of the Cuban nation to forces beyond the hemisphere. They have made Cuba a victim of foreign imperialism, an instrument of the policy of others a weapon in an effort dictated by external powers to subvert the other American republics. This and this alone divides us. As long as this is true, nothing is possible. Without it, everything is possible. 
Once this barrier is removed, we will be ready and anxious to work with the Cuban people in pursuit of those progressive goals which a few short years ago stirred their hopes and the sympathy of many people throughout the hemisphere. No Cuban need feel trapped between dependence on the broken promises of foreign communism and the hostility of the rest of the hemisphere. For once Cuban sovereignty has been restored, we will extend the hand of friendship and assistance to a Cuba whose political and economic institutions have been shaped by the will of the Cuban people. But our, but our pursuit of the goals of the Alianza para el Progreso does not wait on that day. In 1961, the American nations signed the Charter of Punta del Este. Today, more than two years later, despite dangers and difficulties, I support and believe in the Alliance for Progress more strongly than ever before. With the Alliance, the inter-American system, the American nations can look forward to a decade of growing hope and liberty. Without it, the people of this hemisphere would be left to a life of misery with independence finally gone and freedom a futile dream. I am well aware that there are some who, fearing the size of the obstacles, the resistance to progress, the pace of achievement, despair of the Alliance. But that same note of despair has been sounded before. In 1948, a distinguished senator rose on the floor of the American Congress and said of the Marshall Plan, if I believe there were any good chance of accomplishing these purposes, I should support the bill. But in the light of history, in the light of the history of this very Congress and its predecessors, we cannot say there's a chance of success. All the evidence points to failure. Despite this, we pressed ahead. The result is modern Europe. I do not discount the difficulties of the Alliance for Progress, difficulties far greater than those confronted by the Marshall Plan. Then we helped rebuild a shattered economy whose human and social foundations remained. Today, we're trying to create a basic new foundation capable of reshaping the centuries of old societies and economies of half a hemisphere. But those who know our hemisphere, like those who knew Europe in 1948, have little doubt that if we do not lose heart, the gloomy prophecies of today can once again fade in the achievements of tomorrow. For although the problems are huge, the greatest danger is not in our circumstances or in our enemies, but in our own doubts and fears. Robert Frost wrote 50 years ago, nothing is true except a man or men adhere to it, to live for it, to spend themselves on it, to die for it. We need this spirit even more than money or institutions or agreements. With it, we can make the Alianza para el Progreso a reality for generations who are coming in this hemisphere. And ultimately, we will hold a continent where more than 20 strong nations live in peace, their people in hope and liberty, and believing strongly in a free future.
President Kennedy, one of our most popular presidents ever in Latin America, was given a tremendous ovation following his speech. He reaffirmed this country's strong commitment to the Alliance for Progress, but indirectly criticized Argentina and military takeovers in Latin America for interfering with Alliance goals. Argentina has just seized American oil properties. He noted that the Alliance has encountered harsh difficulties and still faces enormous problems, but he called for an end to despair about the project and a revitalization of the spirit needed to make it work. This is Richard Valeriani, NBC News, in the Grand Ballroom of the Americana Hotel in Miami Beach. You've been listening to President Kennedy in Florida, an NBC News special covering the president's activities during a one-day speaking tour of Florida. This program was produced by James L. Holton, directed by Daniel Field, with the cooperation of stations WFLA in Tampa and WIOD in Miami. Portions of the preceding were pre-recorded. This is the NBC Radio Network. Thank mm-hmm. you.